Is it possible for a genuine Christian, a human being who has been authentically born again, to forfeit God's gift of salvation? Is it possible for a genuine Christian, a human being who has been authentically born again, to forfeit God's gift of salvation? Now, beloved, I'm a pastor. I'm a professor too, but my identity really is bound up with being a pastor. Which means that this particular question is no recreational pursuit on the part of a bored theologian. It is a question of the most practical sort forced upon me by the fact that I have known many people who, though once professing to be followers of Jesus Christ, no longer manifest any evidence of spiritual life. It's a question forced upon all of us by the ever-present reality of apostasy. What is apostasy? What is apostasy? It is the open and final repudiation of one's allegiance to God in Jesus Christ. It is the deliberate, willful, decisive rejection of the gospel. And what we discover from reading the Bible is that ever since the fall, the apostate impulse in the human heart has been a salient feature of our race. In fact, have you ever noticed the many terms the Bible uses that speak of apostasy? To forsake God, Deuteronomy 31. To turn aside from God, 1 Kings 9. To wander away from God, Jeremiah 14. To rebel against God, Ezekiel 2. To cast God behind one's back, Ezekiel 23. To commit treachery against God, Daniel chapter 9. To commit whoredom against God, harlotry against God, Hosea chapter 1. To fall away from the faith, Matthew 24. To neglect God's great salvation, Hebrews 2. To fall away from the living God, Hebrews 3. To shrink back from Christ, Hebrews 10. To forsake the fellowship of God's gathered people, 1 John 2. Apostasy is the photographic negative of repentance. Both are characterized by deliberate acts of turning. One is a turning toward God, repentance. The other is a turning away from God, apostasy. It is a kind of anti-conversion. It's displayed in Judas Iscariot, who betrays the Lord. Hymenaeus and Alexander, who make shipwreck of their faith. Demas, who abandons Paul because he loves this present world. In fact, several New Testament letters warn us about the reality of apostasy. The book of Galatians, 1 and 2 Timothy, to Peter, Jude, and most notably, of course, the book of Hebrews. But apostasy, beloved, is not something you know about simply because you read of it on the pages of the Scriptures you all have your own tales to tell, don't you? Tales of people that you have known and loved. People you have always assumed to be Christian because their testimony seemed so solid and their devotion so sincere. 
But tonight, when they cross your memory, you find yourself wondering, where is she? Where is he? He seems to be the polar opposite of what he once was. The intensity of her zeal for Jesus in the past has given way to a corresponding lack of interest in Jesus for the present. And what I'm suggesting to you, my dear friends, is we can't simply pretend that such a thing doesn't happen. Rather, the issue for us is, how do we explain such a thing? How do we define this phenomenon that has been endemic to the people of God throughout all of human history? Well, some would suggest, once saved, always saved. Really? Oh, yeah. I I was there when he went forward at that evangelistic meeting. I knelt by her bed with her when she was three years old. I saw him raise his hand at the prompting of the preacher. I was there when she was baptized. I was there when he joined the church. And after all, once saved, always saved. Charles Stanley has said, and I quote, Even if a believer for all practical purposes becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy. St. Hodges writes, The Bible makes it clear that many believers will not persevere in loyalty to Christ. Some will become apostates, yet continue to be a Christian. And a third has said, quote, Believers who become agnostics are still saved. They're still born again. You can even become an atheist. But if you once accept Christ as Savior, you cannot lose your salvation, even though you deny God. I guess, to be honest, I would have expected something of a gasp. Does this carry with it the weight of the Word of God? How about the alternative offered by classic Arminianism? To be sure, such people were saved at one time, but because they failed to maintain that faith, that gift has been taken away, and they are now eternally lost. Which is a real problem. Because Hebrews 6 says, if they really are lost, they can't ever be converted again. Is that right? What does the Bible say? Is it possible for an authentic Christian to be eternally lost? Is it possible for a person to be a Christian, live like a non-Christian, even to the extent of repudiating the gospel, and still be certain of his or her salvation? The little book of Jude is a book about apostasy. But this wasn't Jude's original intention when he wrote this little postcard. His original design was to write a little tract on the doctrine of salvation. But sensitive pastor that he was, he paused to carefully consider the life situation of his audience. And as he did, the Spirit of God began to redirect the impulses of his heart. What does Jude see as he considers the situation of his readers? An assembly of Christians that have now been infiltrated by false teachers. False teachers who were saying to these Christians, the grace of God is a wonderful excuse to live in any way you jolly well please. So satisfy your appetites. Should we continue in sin that grace might abound? Yeah. That's exactly what they were saying. 
And what frightens Jude is the realization that to play fast and loose with the grace of God is very often the first step on the road to total apostasy. So he says in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know, guys, I thought it would be really neat to write a little treatise on the doctrine of soteriology. Forgive the big word. The doctrine of salvation. To talk a little bit about this wonderful salvation that we share. But upon further reflection, I've set aside my original agenda because you are in the middle of a fight and the stakes are nothing less than your eternal well-being. In verse 22, Jude talks about those in the congregation who were now doubting. Those in verse 23 who would even place themselves within the very sniff of hell itself, in all probability, not only by virtue of their licentious living, but flirting with the temptation to deny Jesus Christ. The false teachers had done their job. You see, the signs of apostasy were beginning to manifest themselves. So, why am I writing, Jude says? I'm writing to tell you to fight for the content of the gospel, not to surrender to this distortion of the grace of God, to resist these assaults leveled against the person of Jesus Christ. So, in verse 4, Jude defines these false teachers and their message. In verses 5 through 7, so as to help his readers feel something of the danger these false teachers pose to their souls, he reminds them of God's past judgment on apostates. In verses 8 through 16, he describes the sins of these false teachers with incredibly graphic language and ultimately their future condemnation. All of which brings us to verse 17 where Jude now turns the corner and becomes much more personal. But you, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. These false teachers ought not to surprise you. We're in the last days. We're in the new age. We're in that epoch when people will seek to distort the gospel, just as the apostles forewarned us. Now watch his very strong exhortation, verse 20. But you, over against these I've just spoken about, but you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, the structure of these verses is very, very significant and revealing. In all of these words that are here, there is only one simple command. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. What does this mean? Well, in the context of Jude, in the flow of his argument, he is saying, don't commit apostasy. Don't fall away. Don't turn your back on Jesus Christ. Don't stray from God's love by forsaking the Lord Jesus and the gospel. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Okay. But how? How do we persevere in the face of the powerful temptations to give in? Give in? Firstly, by building yourself up, he says, in the most holy faith. 
Now, friends, when he talks about faith here, he's not talking about our subjective expressions of faith. I have faith. You have faith. Jude is talking here about the faith. Something objective, the content of Christian truth. And what Jude is saying is, keep yourself from falling away from Jesus Christ. But how do I do this? In the language we've been using in recent days. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Keep the gospel in front of you. Steadily give yourself to the ongoing pursuit of gospel truth. Be teaching the gospel. Be reading the gospel. Be singing the gospel. Be talking and gossiping the gospel when you get together with God's people. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Secondly, he says, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the most effective means, friends, of keeping your hearts from growing cold and hardened toward God is a consistent engagement in fervent prayer. Thirdly, eagerly await the coming again of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when he comes a second time, he is bringing something to you. An expression of his mercy, the completion of your salvation, eternal life. And this raises a vitally important issue at this very juncture, dear friends. You need to understand that there is an already aspect to eternal life, right? When a person, by the grace of God, turns from his sin and embraces Jesus Christ, he is given, she is given eternal life, right? In a very real sense, eternal life is something possessed. But that's not all the Bible says on this issue. There are just as many verses that indicate that there is a not yet aspect to eternal life. A not yet aspect to salvation. That we are waiting for eternal life. That we are waiting for the consummation of our salvation that we have yet to experience. And so until that day, the exhortation is clear. We must not fall away from Jesus Christ. We must persevere in faithfulness to him. Apart from which there is no final experience of salvation. Now, during the last century, the label assigned to this particular doctrine has been termed the perseverance of the saint. And it is a legitimate label insofar as it goes, in that it does accurately capture one strand of biblical instruction that we must never, ever underplay. Over and over and over, the Bible is consistent about the need for Christians to persevere in fidelity to Jesus Christ to the very end of their lives. This simply isn't the burden of Jude, beloved. In a context where the possibility of apostasy is real, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, when future salvation is in view... Perseverance is a condition to its experience. When future salvation is in view, perseverance is a condition to its experience. Paul says in Colossians, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen in the future, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the future aspect of our salvation. If... If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. 
When future salvation is in view, perseverance is a condition to its experience. Hebrews says it like this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about that Exodus generation. Remember? Delivered out of Egypt by great power. Man, they saw all the miracles you could ever possibly see. They didn't, they didn't respond to it in faith. And so they all perish in the wilderness. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. In other words, he's saying, this is why you get together. See, this is why you meet with Christians regularly. This is why your Christian life will not sustain itself if all you do is gather with God's people on Sunday. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. When future salvation is in view, perseverance is a condition to its experience. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. In fact, what we're about to see, friends, on Sunday mornings, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, seven times, the gift of eternal life is given to a particular group of people. The overcoming ones. The conquering ones. The persevering ones. And this is exactly what Jude is saying right here. You must not fall away. You must persevere in faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ. You must keep yourself in the love of God. And my dear brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you tonight is you need to make sure that this emphasis of biblical instruction stands on its own in your understanding of the Christian life. Do not collapse this into your understanding of eternal security. Do not allow the hue of this shade of the truth to be obscured by the colors you think to be more pronounced. Tonight, if you claim to be a Christian, but you're content to live your life in a pattern that is distinctly non-Christian, that denies the Lord that you claim to be your own, then this is the truth you must hear. You have no basis upon which to confidently stake your eternal well-being. In your case, the old adage, once saved, always saved, may be the very slogan that sends you to hell. Now listen to me. It is true that a person authentically saved is always saved. I'm going to show you this very strand of truth in just a minute. The problem is many people distort this truth into once prayed, always saved. I prayed when I was five years old. I went forward when I was 13. But if last week told you anything, it was that there is very little you do outwardly to contribute to your salvation. The fact of the matter is you don't do anything to contribute to your salvation. You respond to the grace of God. And therefore, my dear friends, you need to appreciate that profession is not synonymous with possession. 
The Bible never teaches assurance of salvation by saying, remember when you asked Jesus into your heart. I mean, where do you even get that concept? Now, this does not mean that it is impossible for a Christian to disobey God. Even for a period of time. This is not to say that a good, faithful Christian will never fall into great and scandalous sin. One only need to think about men like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Peter. What this means is, though a person who is authentically born again may fall, and may fall greatly, they will never fall finely and fully. The repeated testimony of the Bible is unmistakably clear, friends. God gives His not yet gift of eternal life to those who remain faithful to Jesus Christ to the very end of their lives. When future salvation is in view, perseverance is a condition to its experience. But, this is not all that the Bible says on this issue, is it? And it's why, you see, I'm not over the moon about the label, the perseverance of the saints. Because even though it does accurately capture an aspect of this doctrine, an important and overlooked aspect to be sure, especially in American circles, it fails to adequately capture another strand of this that makes it to be an expression of God's grace. You say, Hart, I think I know what you're getting at. There are a lot of verses that teach us that God eternally keeps His own. And beloved, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. This too is a truth beyond all disputation. Listen to Jesus in John 6. And this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, this is God's will. I want to know God's will for my life. Well, let's begin by looking at what Jesus says God's will is. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Boy, there's that phrase we've come across before. There's this group of people that God the Father has given to God the Son. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, second time, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, my friends, do you hear the basis for the eternal security of this group of people? The basis for your security is the will of God the Father and the promise of God the Son. How strong is God's will? How firm is Christ's promise? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's perseverance. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There is preservation. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In other words, the security of the sheep... Your security tonight is directly tied to the strength of the shepherd and his father, God himself. 
In fact, friends, just a quick reminder of what we looked at last week. Don't, don't turn there. Just, just listen to it and let it wash over you. huh? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. In other words, if a person is the object of God's predestinating purpose, he will also be called. If a person is the object of God's irresistible call, he will also be justified. If a person is the object of God's justification, he will also be glorified. But I didn't say it quite right, did I? Paul doesn't say God will justify him. God will glorify him. He uses the past tense. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Talking about you. Paul's writing this before you were even a thought in your mama's mind. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He glorified me? Past tense? He speaks proleptic. In other words, so certain that nothing will interrupt God's saving purpose, Paul speaks of your glorification in the past tense. And this then, beloved, you see, becomes the very basis for your confidence as you walk through life and face all of the kinds of things that we have to face. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to accuse you? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. It's of no consequence to God. Why? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Why is your salvation secure? Because at the right hand of God the Father right now, there is a high priest offering the benefits of his sacrifice on your behalf. I died for Lee Chin. I died for John Larson. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, friends, let me tell you pastorally that there are some very wonderful, fine Christian people who are of such tender, delicate conscience that nearly every time they sin, they live in dread that this time they may have lost the favor of God. It's not that they've forsaken the gospel. It's not that they've turned their back on Jesus Christ. But in their fight against sin, they have fallen short of God's glory once again. They've yielded temptation. And they're very quick to question then their standing before God. 
This is precisely what they need to hear. The Father keeps His children eternally. His choice of them does not suddenly become His unchoosing. His regeneration of them does not suddenly become His unregeneration. His justification of them does not become suddenly His unjustification. His glorification of them does not suddenly become His unglorification. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, Paul says in Romans 11. And so tonight, beloved, if you are a very tender, conscienced Christian, you need to take heed to this truth. You are as secure as God is strong. Now, here's the point. We have these two parallel truths running through the Word of God with equal emphasis. The believer must persevere. God preserves his own. The antinomian rejects the first and embraces the second. You might as well go ahead and live any way you want because once saved, always saved. The Arminian embraces the first but rejects the second. You better persevere, otherwise you will lose your salvation. But, beloved, the Bible teaches both perseverance and preservation. And we have to embrace both, not stressing one to the exclusion of the other. You say, but Art, how can we do that? Well, the answer that the Bible gives us is very, very simple. One is the cause of the other. One is the cause of the other. But which is the cause and which is the effect? Is your perseverance the cause of God's preservation... That his preservation is his reward to you for your perseverance? Or is God's preservation the cause of your perseverance that you persevere because by his grace he preserves? Well, what does Jude say? Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Do you see the connection, friends? On the one hand, Jude exhorts his readers to keep themselves in God's love. They must exercise effort and vigilance and diligence and discipline and fidelity. And yet, finally and ultimately, he tells us that those who manage to escape apostasy do so because of the keeping power of God. And what we discover is that the whole book is built on this concept because it begins just as it ends. Notice verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are... Oh, here we got the same language again. The called. And how are they defined? Beloved... In God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We persevere because God preserves. God grants the grace for the perseverance He requires. 
So listen to how Paul says it to the Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God grants the grace for the perseverance he demands. Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's perseverance. May the realities of salvation work itself out in the context of Philippians 2, in the context of relationships with people in the body that you don't like. Let that salvation work itself out. For, here's the reason why, You can do it. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You get the point? It's very simple. We work, God works. But we work because God works. God grants the grace for the perseverance he requires. We persevere because God preserves. Now let me give you an illustration. And then we will tie this up. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about how Jesus Christ is our great high priest. The one who with his own life made atonement for his people. And if you recall a couple of weeks ago, I also mentioned his other priestly task, that of making intercession, that of praying. And we discovered from John chapter 17 that the people for whom Jesus makes atonement and the people for whom Jesus makes intercession are one in the same group. These actions are coextensive. And he is very explicit in John chapter 17 verse 9. I do not pray for the world. I pray for those you have given me out of the world. He prays for his own. Now, are you mindful of the example of this, this focused intercession that occurs in proximity to the crucifixion? It is the very different story of two men, both of whom were closely associated with Jesus. One was named Judas, the other named Peter. Judas betrayed Christ. He sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Was there remorse on his part when Jesus was crucified? Yes. Was there repentance, restoration, and subsequent perseverance? No. In John 17, Jesus refers to him as the son of destruction. And then there was Peter. Notorious for his great boast... I will die for you. But later that very same evening, even more notorious for his great denials, I don't know the man interspersed with a few choice cursings to punctuate his point. And yet, beloved, when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, what is it that the angel says to the women who have come to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus? He is risen. Go tell his disciples and Peter. It is Peter who gets a private meeting with the resurrected Christ, Luke 24. It is Peter that Jesus restores to ministry, John 21. 
It is Peter who leads the apostolic band. It is Peter to whom Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom. It is Peter who preaches the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. It is Peter who performs the first miracle. It is Peter who declares the gospel in the power of the Spirit to the Sanhedrin. It is Peter who takes the gospel to the Gentile world. It is Peter who writes two inspired letters by the Spirit of God. It is Peter who is crucified for his allegiance to Jesus Christ. What is it that makes the difference between Judas who had fallen and Peter who had fallen? One of them had a high priest who was praying for him. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It is a graphic illustration of Hebrews 7. Where the writer says about our great high priest Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We persevere because God preserves. He grants the grace for the perseverance he requires. All true Christians remain faithful to Jesus Christ to the very end of their lives. And the reason they do so is because God himself preserves them by providing for their repentance. It reminds me of that cry of St. Augustine. Some of you know it. Grant me the grace to do as you command... And then command me to do what you will. Perseverance and preservation. Tonight, if you possess a phony faith, a hypocritical faith, a fallacious faith, then you are not a Christian. You need to turn from your sin and embrace the one Savior that God Himself supplies. And you have His definitive word. He will not turn away any who come to Him for salvation. If you want Him, you come. So give up the games, give up the facade, give up the hypocrisies. Ask this Savior to save you and He will. No one will ever be able to say to him on the great and final day, I wanted him and I couldn't have him. Are you a Christian this evening? Has your perseverance been compromised in recent days? Turn from that sin while you can hear God's voice. Confess that sin to him right now. Beloved, you need to know this. That only the runners who finish the race will gain the prize. Can I tell you something? After 30 years of ministry, I'm sure there's an exception to this somewhere, but I've never known one. Nobody ever sets out to be an apostate. 
Nobody ever gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to be an apostate. They just fail to realize that every sin carries with it the seed of total apostasy. So ask God tonight to give you fresh mercy for your failings and fresh grace for your perseverings. And I can guarantee you that he will meet you with everything you need. You will persevere, beloved. You will persevere. I do not doubt that. If you are an authentic child of God, you will persevere. Because Jesus Christ has guaranteed to faithfully preserve you. Thanks be to God for this. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, it's not your intention that we would walk through this life crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. Living in dread because you are such a capricious God. When you save us, you save us forever, but you save us thoroughly. So that there are evidences that indicate the reality of the new birth. And on those occasions when we intentionally or unintentionally move in a direction that is contrary to what we proclaim with our lips... We are thankful to know tonight that your grace sustains us and preserves us. That like a good father, you who love your children so perfectly will chastise them and bring them back into the path of obedience. The fact of the matter is To live in rank disobedience and never know the discipline of God is to prove that one is an illegitimate child. So, Father, it is with great encouragement tonight that we affirm the salvation you have given to us, acknowledging that it is owing all to you and your grace in our lives. We thank you and praise you. And out of a sense of gratitude for what you have done, we again offer you our lives, our money, our homes, our skills, 
and even now for these few moments, our voices. We love you and we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.